We have not adapted to Earth. She needs us to do that. Instead, we've tried to adapt Earth to our needs, which is always an extraction, take away. Earth will always be here. Now, if you go deeper into indigenous peoples, and you can see the modernity and then so-called primitive people, you don't need to be in contact, in relationship, and in communication, have a language with all other life that technology is taking us away from because we feel like we're elite to anything having to do with Earth. We should not abuse water, the air, the land, the food, anything. So when it comes to animacy, it's the Western term also. And so we get away from the Western terms. We start seeing that, oh, we are becoming Earth as we're born into this physical dimension. We are becoming Earth. And then as we are living during this time we are alive, we are becoming Earth. And when we are finished with this body, we are becoming Earth. I've chosen my work because I've loved the outside world. I love the things outside of myself. I love what isn't immediate to me. And I love projecting onto that as a way of kind of trying to reach the distance between my inner self and vastness. But to try to do that in a way that makes other people feel inspired by it, not be chided for not taking care of it. It's not something that I intend to be a message per se, but I think it might be a better message if it's not saying, people, you've been bad, you have to change your evil ways. You know, I'd rather people look at the natural world and see the heartbreaking beauty of it and sense its fragility and its impermanence and their own impermanence and fragility and then have a response to that rather than say, you have to act, you have to do something. I would hope that would inspire action rather than to cudgel them with a directive. I don't think a lot of people even realize this, how absolutely important whales are. And not just because they're beautiful and they make people happy, but whales actually carry nutrients from the depths where they feed back to the surface. And there's this incredible liquidy plume of fecal matter, and it's called the whale pump. And they bring all these nutrients upward with their tails by swimming up and down the water column. So it's like an upward biological pump. And there's an incredible amount of nitrogen that's released in these fecal plumes. And we get this great soup of nutrients. In fact, we get more nitrogen than all the rivers combined. I mean, this is huge. And so in the past, we've recognized microbes and plankton and fish and uh, that they recycle nutrients in the ocean. Yet whales and other marine mammals have largely been overlooked. And that's really too bad because they are bioengineers. They help the climate so much. Just sperm whales alone in the Southern Ocean help sequester over 19 million trees worth of carbon. They promote the growth of phytoplankton, which absorbs carbon. So if we just had so many whales, that could be an incredible solution. So when you think about saving the whales, you're actually thinking about saving the people whether it's your family or your grandchildren or your great-grandchildren. One of the big differences I've noticed talking with people from more communally oriented cultures is that our culture has a strong emphasis on the individual, on individual happiness, on individual achievement, on individual self-expression. And there are other cultures where the community, the family, and the neighborhood where you live are paramount. And the well-being of others is the first thing you think about. The most exemplary instance of that is in Bhutan, where they can't even propose a law for the legislature to consider in Bhutan unless 
they have a full section describing the effect on the community of any given law, the effect on the well-being of the whole population. So nothing is about the individual. It's all about the collective. I think one of the key things that I've certainly learned, I think it's wise to work together for the common good of not only our Earth, but our lives and the lives of all creatures on this fair planet of ours. It's a magical world that we live on. It's unique. Uh, again, as far as we know, we're the only ones running around like mad people. And I think we should try and enjoy it as best as we can. And we should try and love as best as we can. And we should try and help each other as best as we can. Because in the end, we're all connected in every way, shape and form. And that is the be all and end all of it. We are one. We're all in this together. It's important to know about our own cultures and something about world history. I think it's important to be aware of traditions and including the religious traditions of our cultures because they help to integrate and connect us. To abandon them means we're disintegrated and disconnected. Obviously, everyone needs to know about science and technology because they're such an important part of the modern world. But I would begin scientific courses by making it clear what's open questions and what are simply assumptions. I think it's important to be introduced to the culture, literature, music, and other forms of art and architecture, and the great buildings. Every ancient civilization has wonderful buildings as part of its culture, you know, like the great cathedrals of Europe or the temples of India. I think it's very important to connect with those as well. Nowadays, people's memories are probably getting worse because they look everything up on, on cell phones all the time. And of course, learning to sing and to dance and to celebrate and the elements of basic sports and of all these things. I think learning things by heart is very important because it means they're then part of our being. Nothing can take them from us. I'd love young people to feel connected to nature and feel a delight in being part of nature. I'd love young people to feel masters of their own minds, to realize that actually they have the potential to control their anxiety, to control their anger, to choose how they feel. It's not easy, but you can learn to do that. I'd love young people to feel the joy of being conscious, embodied creatures in the natural world with values and connected to other joyful, embodied creatures. I mean, if you can just get people really accessing these things and then creating societies that share the incredible bounty. That's, of course, a, a real Shangri-La I'm envisaging, but why not dream about that? Coral reefs are the most biodiverse habitat on the planet. Despite covering less than 1% of the ocean area, they have over a quarter of all marine life exists in these rainforests of the sea. And if you think of a coral reef as a rainforest, the trees are the coral themselves, which are incredible organisms. And so magic is really the right word to describe them. They're these animals that, that are one of the original forms of animal life. And so it's an animal, but it's got plants that live inside it, this algae. And then even more wild, it grows a skeleton that is rock. And most of the limestone that exists on the earth was grown by these organisms. Corals can live for thousands of years to be seen from space and to create these essential ecosystems that are really 
the cornerstone of all of life in the ocean and therefore much of life on Earth. The one thing I learned from looking at the ancient trees is that there is no great benefit of growing quickly and accumulating vast resources. Growing slowly and patiently and with fewer demands on the environment in which you live is more healthy than the endless hunger for more and more and more, which we see as a characteristic of our species, I think, like a scientist. It's a wonderful thing to stand like Gulliver on top of an entire ecosystem that's only three inches tall. I found that tremendously thrilling. I have no religious affiliation, but I feel a close connection to the planet. It brought me here, and after I die, I will go back to it. So I feel that the entire planet is a living being with 20 million species that are its components. And I think it's a, it's a wonderful thing to think about existence in that way because it opens up the possibility of you just becoming part of the universe. You have quite a huge impact on how your life is going to turn out. So the first message is you have your life in your hands. You have a big part of your life you have in your hands. But then there's also something else which absolutely lies not in your hands and where we humans have no influence on. And sometimes you might call it, it is the course of nature or it is the flow of life or it is just the way. There are many different expressions of it. And that means, how do you know if you are finding yourself in the flow of life, if you are in harmony with nature? You know, because what you are doing, what you are thinking, somehow it feels that it is aligned with the rest of what you are surrounded with. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This podcast is created with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Max Richter's music featured in this episode was on the Nature of Daylight from the Blue Notebooks, Path 19, Yet the Frailest from Sleep. Music is courtesy of Max Richter, Universal Music Enterprises, and Mute Song. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.